oh my God, I'm turning into my parents. Now that's something that most, if not all of us, have found ourselves saying at one point to our team, typically after they've done something especially exasperating. But what is it about this inevitability of us turning into the type of parents that our team selves promised we wouldn't become? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan McGill, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this series, I've been talking to a range of experts, parents and students about how we can get the most out of studying at home. From nutrition to sleep and from stress to mental health, we've explored how best to support young people. So subscribe, rate and review and of course feel free to share with others who you think might benefit from what our experts are saying. Today, I'm joined by two fantastic guests. Bettina Honan and Jane Gilmore, both are clinical psychologists with a focus on young people. Together with Tara Murphy, Bettina and Jane have written The Incredible Teenage Brain, Everything You Need to Unlock a Teen's Potential. This book is based on an enormous body of research on brain science, but it's been made accessible for those of us parents, carers or teachers who may not have had 20 plus years working in the field. Bettina, Jane, thank you very much for joining me. Before we begin, in what I've got a feeling is going to be an episode about me finding out where I went wrong, I'd very much like to talk to you about your own school days and what kind of students you were. So Bettina, if I can start with you, what were you like at school? So I had um, a bit of an unusual um, time during education, actually. I was quite a good student, I believe, in when I was a younger child in, in the primary years. But when I hit the teenage years, I became very disengaged with education. And actually, it's been one of the real drivers of the work that I do, I think, is the fact that I actually really failed academically at school. So when I left school, GCSEs were called O-levels. And I came out of school with four O-levels and actually failed all my A-levels, amazingly. <laughs> I actually went back to education in in my 20s and I found that I had a real passion for learning that I really didn't know at school, but I was very disengaged. I think I didn't see myself as able. I think I was being a really good teenager. I was very interested in friends. I was very passionate about other things. I think I was a bit neurodiverse and nobody really picked that up. But actually, it's been one of the driving forces of my work is just to kind of try and understand young people. And why is it that some children succeed in school and others don't? Because it's clearly not just about ability. It's it's much more complicated than that. No, absolutely. You hear of those, but actually don't those stories of people that have um, failed at school and then gone on to do um, amazing academic things, which clearly you have. But I don't think I've actually ever met anyone. <laughs> so, oh, really? There's <laughs> almost like some kind of urban myth about these people <laughs> out there who, who fell and then come back later on. I, do, I always love hearing that story. It's such a phoenix from the flame, as I always say. It's yes. just fantastic. <laughs> um, well, my school experience wasn't um, straightforward in many ways, although it wasn't quite the picture that Bettina has uh, painted. I had quite an, it was quite erratic actually at school in terms of performance. And I had a, a sort of epiphany, um, probably, I don't know, year 10 or 11, when I was off school for quite a long time and I taught myself a maths topic. And the teacher said, did you get help with this? 
And I absolutely hadn't. But I think that was the point. And I had a, an epiphany that I had some sort of vulnerability, let me say. And I, I, what I know now is that I've got no working memory to speak of. And so it was a real challenge to get the information from the teacher into my brain. And um, so when I was learning independently, I could um, I could figure it out. So I I mean, I'm enormously tenacious. I think that's a Presbyterian Scot in me, as Bettina will attest. <laughs> I don't give up. <laughs> And I go into a room and I know I'm not going to be the smartest, but I might be the most tenacious and that's often enough. So I think that's, you know, it's it's not a straightforward story, but I think it's a really useful experience to take, you know, whatever the endeavour. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it seems that although, as you say, different different stories, different parts, actually underlying them both is this, this tenacity that you said, that, that actually Bettina failing but then not giving up and then coming back to do it is absolutely the kinds of messages that really we do want to get out to our young people isn't it that that if there's something you want you need to um you need to keep striving for it to to succeed it doesn't come naturally to um to many people i'm interested Bettina. you talk about your transformation as part of that that teenage years um and obviously your book is focused on um the teenage brain um, and the adolescent period of time which I understand upsettingly to be much longer than um, you know, 19 <laughs> um, and keeps going on what is it about that um, that sort of that magical I'm going to go mythical 13 um, year old point that makes the Harry Enfield sketch look more like a documentary than a, a comedy skit <laughs> Yeah, so we've really learned so much in the last 25 years or so, um, particularly from neuroscience about teenagers and about the teenage brain. Once we've had access to MRIs and these amazing scanners and things, we've been able to really see what goes on during the teenage years. And, you know, it's been written about for centuries about teenagers' behavior being different. And it was always understood or it was often understood as them being difficult and moody and it being a kind of difficult time. What we understand now from neuroscience and psychology research is that actually the teenage brain is, is perfectly adapted to many of the tasks that it needs to do in this transition from childhood, you know, which ends around the time of puberty, to adulthood, which we think you know, begins somewhere in our mid-20s. So um, um, and many of those things that teenagers are driven to do, their brain is driving them towards, are not necessarily aligned with what we are asking them to do kind of academically. So the things that we kind of cover in our book are, are, and the, the focus of the teenage years are about friends, peer integration, how do I fit in, self-identity, working out who am I, how am I different to other people, Becoming autonomous and independent, you know, very different to how we see a lot of traditional education being sat down and told what to do in a kind of spoon fed way. It's all about autonomy, finding things out for yourself, as well as kind of risk taking and being a very emotional and kind of passionate time as well. So, um, yeah, I think we've learned so much and we really understand things now. I'm not sure that education has quite caught up with the neuroscience and what we know, and I think we're beginning to now. That seems to come through in the exam structures. So GCSEs are uh, geared to remembering and regurgitating with bonus points for um, analysis and, and critical thinking on, on top mm. of that. But how much of that is actually important, that the brain needs to absorb these things in order to be able to 
process information and learn from those situations. So I don't think it's necessarily about the content being different or the tasks being different, but it might be something to do with how we set the learning situation up about, um, you know, if we think about autonomy and independence, for example, um, teenagers are really driven to ask questions themselves, to be driven towards things that they're interested in, to work out how they want to solve a problem. Um, so by having a very top-down curriculum, we're kind of pushing against that. You know, teenagers are very motivationally driven, much more than we are. They fall in love with things. You will remember from your teenage years, I'm sure, not only a person, but an interest or, a, you know, maybe a pop star, but maybe, you know, music or um, something else like that. So they're very driven towards things, but we don't necessarily allow them to follow those passions. We kind of say, you know, that's not the thing you should be studying. You should be studying this thing. So I think it, you don't have to kind of drop everything about the education system, but just think a little bit more carefully about how to set the learning experience up to fit much more with the teenage brain kind of drives. It's quite funny, actually, talking about working memory. Do you know that Jane was just talking about that? I realise as I start talking, I start forgetting what the question was. <laughs> so I hope I am answering your question because um, <laughs> that's my working memory. <laughs> <laughs> I have a similar problem when an answer has so many things in it and I, I try to write down as best as I can while listening so um there's but my yeah. wife's absolutely right I can't multitask there's, um, <laughs> there's no two ways about it but I think that answered the question um completely uh, Jane I just want to pick up on um on one of those aspects so when our children are much younger um then you can absolutely see that curiosity come through with um what is this? Uh, don't um, um, as parents, we end up having to tell them not don't touch that because it's hot, or don't do this, and and you can see that actually that the child is inquisitive and wants to learn. Is that something we're um, squashing out of them as they become teenagers, or as you, or as Bettina suggested, is it simply that our institutions aren't geared to help them express themselves in that way? I mean, I, I think certainly there is that curiosity more so than ever. And I think, as Bettina said, it's all in the delivery. And um, we know, in fact, there's a really lovely piece of data that adults will listen and read instructions if they need to do something, whereas teenagers will put the instructions to one side and want to find out for themselves. So that curiosity about the world is a magnificent resource. And you can see why, from a sort of evolutionary point of view, why it's wonderful, because they may find out something altogether novel that the community's never discovered before. So this is about um, placing an educational task in front of a teen and making it something that whets their appetite in terms of exploration and risk-taking, which is a key drive in the teen brain. So risk-taking simply means do something. You don't know what the outcome will be, but do it anyway. So if we could deliver these educational tasks and still covering all aspects of the curriculum, but in a way that was an invitation to explore the unknown, I think we would get an extraordinary benefit from that, you know, both for the young person, but also, you know, for community-wide. Who knows what we could discover and find out. So I think, in, I think curiosity is fundamental to the adolescent experience, the adolescent brain. We need to tap into that. That's our challenge. It's odd, isn't it? Because that's that goes against, I think, so much of what we see as um, parenting. So when I look back to Jake doing his GCSEs, um, and he is very similar to me in a number of um, startling ways. But see, I've I've 
I've seen this. I can see telegraphed a, a mile down the road what's going to happen if you follow this path. And every every fibre in my body screams, actually probably literally as well, at him, don't do, don't do that. Do it, do it this way because this is what's going to happen. How do you balance the, the, the parenting need to, and it's, I don't think it's so much about protection as about moving on. We as a community have learnt this already find something else to learn? I think that is a wonderful question. And it's a question that we're often asked um, clinically and in in lots of other contexts, because as a parent, we often have uh, children and teens who may have a similar profile to us, whether that's because of neurodiversity. So maybe you've got dyslexic profile and your, your son's got dyslexic tendencies or just an approach to learning which you have explored and experienced and it has uh, come back and bitten you so there's a there is a real tendency as a parent to want to protect your teen from that same mistake but what we do know because of the way that the teen brain is wired is that it's unlikely to be a, a a fruitful experience to say, look, this this didn't work for me, try and do something different, because the likelihood is a teen will want to explore it for themselves. Their brain is very much wired to do that. Um, what that doesn't mean is that it's not about talking about it, but it's just about sharing experience, not in a scolding or telling off, but you can say, this was my experience. It didn't work for me. Uh, I wonder how you'll approach this. Um, so you're taking a step back. You're not telling telling him off and telling him what to do because we know that's unlikely to work. I think the other thing to be aware of, and it's something that we're all, all of us as parents, because all we want for our kids is for things to be okay. I mean, everybody essentially is coming from us, Bettina says, a position of love when we do this. But, you know, if you feel that you can watch your son walk into a situation that you have found very difficult, you're likely to be very emotional and very anxious rather than being calm and saying, you know, I wonder how this will work out um, because your buttons are being pressed. And so being aware of that is a wonderful gift for you to say, oh, this is something that's pushing my buttons. I'm going to step back. Maybe my partner can talk about this because this is just too close to me. That's an interesting twist on, I think, as a as a parent of a teen and, and we were in a stressful situation when it came to revision specifically because, as I say, he... Um, the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree, but but tended to look at it as actually his emotional state, meaning that it wasn't the things weren't being dealt with correctly, rather than actually, as you say, it was probably more about me and the fact that I didn't have enough clarity of mind to 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 deal with it in a in a sensible and adult way at that point. But it's so emotional. It's what as parents, you know, we are emotional beings that you know we're in a position where we just want things to be okay, and it. It often puts us in a position of anxiety. And if you think about, uh, for example, if you have a child with ADHD, what they need most in the world is routine and explicit guidelines followed systematically and calmly. But they're likely to be born into a family where at least one parent will have ADHD-like tendencies. And the, the family environment that they produce will be wonderful and rich, yes, absolutely, but it's unlikely to be routinized and straightforward so we have to be aware of the things that we bring to our family yes you know sometimes that can be wonderful but that vulnerability you know might make a synergy of emotion which maybe is not the ideal for a learning environment is about keeping it calm and keeping in our thinking brain rather than our emotional brain but it's a tough call and you're definitely not alone we Mm. all have been there absolutely so we're not drawing a line i wonder why is it then that Every parent has obviously been a teen 
And as I said, I was very similar to Jake. Why, why was my level of empathy so low that I wasn't able to remember the strategies that didn't work for my mum and dad to the point where I tried to relive them probably painfully closely in order to try and extract a result out of Jake? I mean, I, I think what we hope is that our book um, and, you know, all the science and our book included is helpful in that way, because what it does is it enables us to see teenage behavior in a different way. And I think what we do is as adults, we have lived through it. We have the wisdom to see what it means. We want our children to be happy. That's all parents want more than anything. But we often see academic success as the path to that happiness. And so we push them to be academically successful. But in the meantime, we can sometimes, you know, cause a rupture in our relationship and maybe make them less happy than, than they're going to be, forgetting that that was what we went through ourselves. So I think the other thing is that sometimes we have a bit of a fixed mindset. So when we see a characteristic in our teenager, we think it's there for life. Oh my God, they, you know, they're not interested in, um, they're interested in these frivolous things or, you know, they're not interested in anything academic. How are they ever going to make anything of their lives? Or they can't even sit down to a dinner table. How are they ever going to sit in a board meeting? they're not sitting in a board meeting, they're only 13, is what you need to say to yourself. That's not what they have to do at this point. But the teen brain is different. It's wired differently from a child, it's wired differently from an adult. And so its attunement to the world is different. You know, give yourself a break. If you feel your priorities are slightly different as an adult, of course they are. You're perhaps disaster planning or think, what, oh, however, what's going to become of this child if you know, they can't do that maths prep? You know, it might get in the way of that moment. Just just recognizing that your child is wired to think about social in, ex, social inclusion, for example, much more readily than maths prep. But you, as a parent, are thinking of the future and so on. So, you've got to give yourself a break. They're almost talking a different, slightly different language, and so finding empathy is hard because you, as a parent, are thinking in a different way too. Um, so I think it's not beating yourself up for for having that that difficulty to getting alongside because it is difficult. You know, if it's easy, we'd all be doing it. You know, we wouldn't have to write a book. <laughs> is there a danger, though, that that can go just too far? So uh, in a previous episode, we spoke to um, Catherine Burblesing and she uh, talked very much about the role of a parent as being um, in a position of authority and actually that children need rules, they need boundaries. Is there a danger that actually if we step back too far that um, our children and our teens can um, can go well off the rails too too far off the rails absolutely and it's a real balance between having very clear boundaries and having empathy and I really think it's possible to do both but one of the things you have to do as a parent is to be very clear what your boundaries are and to probably make the decisions about what those boundaries are not when you're in the moment feeling anxious yourself so that's the first thing like what are my boundaries preferably discussing them with your child before this is what I expect and problem solving about how things will go wrong and then everybody knows when you're in the moment and everybody's feeling anxious and there's an exam the next day or the deadline's not being met and everybody's a bit in there you know what we talk about in the book is your emotional brain more in your fight or flight mode you don't have to be setting boundaries in those moments because that's actually when parents can go 
that's it. If you do that one more time, Christmas is cancelled. And then, you know, <laughs> you're supposed to see it through. Um, <laughs> so I really think it is possible to do both, but you have to be very, very thoughtful about it. And I would agree, you absolutely, this is not the time to take your hands off the wheel. Um, we use an analogy in the book of being a co-pilot or a kind of co-driver. It's a bit like they are beginning to be able to drive themselves. And, you know, they've got these 10 to 15 years to learn before they're going to be on their own. But they have you alongside them. And a bit like when you're learning to drive and the driving instructor is able to put their foot down on the pedal and stop at any time. Um, so you are in control, but your teenager is trying to take the lead or you're you know, trying to work it out a bit for themselves. Which I guess, Jane, is especially important given their teen nature to take risks, as you say, that actually to know that there's a, well, what you would hope would be the, the steady hand of a, a parent or um, carer there is, is what they need. So yes, we, we traditionally think about teenage risk-taking in terms of sex, drugs and rock and roll. But actually what we need to do as adult supporting teens is reframe the idea of risk-taking. Because what we know is that a risk is simply an activity that doesn't have an unro uh, that doesn't have a known outcome. So we can feed that need for risk-taking with positive activities. So for example, take the leap and make a public speech. Take the leap and learn a new language. Take the leap and join a, a political rally. All those things which are interesting and will, you know, will develop the young person emotionally are also risks. So we need to be able to consider ways of delivering those ideas of, of risk-taking and there's a likelihood that that will suffice, if that makes sense, the idea of taking risks. But yes, you're also right that if you have a young teen who is... Um, taking part in dangerous risks and there is a safeguarding issue, yes, you absolutely do need to form a very clear boundary. That would also mean maintaining some curiosity about why that's happening. And do bear in mind that the peer group activity are, is likely to be key in that. So in other words, we know that teens will be very motivated to fit in with their peer group and what their peer group is doing is likely to influence what they may be doing in terms of risk taking. So those are some things to, to bear in mind. But, you know, that's also in the context of the discussion we had earlier about being autocratic and setting down laws in, in a non-consultative way is unlikely to get you moving forward. It's about maintaining curiosity and being supportive and maintaining a clear boundary. And it is tough, but it's possible to do. Because I'm right in thinking um, from from your book and from talks that actually this this need for social connection is of paramount importance isn't it for teens yeah no definitely that's one of the things that we have learned from neuroscience um, in recent years is how fundamentally social we are as human beings actually it's true for all of us and there are some amazing studies where they emulate social exclusion in an mri scanner and what they've shown is that the the, the place in the brain that we feel physical pain, so when we've broken our leg, is the same place in the brain where we feel social pain, which would suggest that from an evolutionary point of view, we kind of understand that um, being part of a group is as important to our safety as it is being physically safe. So this is true for all of us, but it's more so for teenagers who are going through this period of social integration. The social parts of their brain are developing, they are relating to other aspects of the brain in a different way. 
I think that certainly plays through when it comes to revision and studying at home. And I wonder whether actually there's resistance to... If, if a child isn't a natural studier, doesn't find it enjoyable, um, thinking obviously to your own school days, actually it just wasn't something you enjoyed. And I wonder then whether parents, through their own aspirations, through a projected future happiness being dependent on passing A-levels, tries to push them into a new pigeonhole, um, which becomes yeah. uncomfortable. Is that the kind of thing that you can see as having a either nil effect, because actually the, the teen resists, or detrimental? Yeah, I think it definitely can be detrimental. What we sometimes do inadvertently, so we communicate with other people in terms of what we say to them. Um, you know, when are you going to do your homework, for example. But also we have to really be careful about what we say and when and what message we give to a young person. So if the only thing we ever say to a young person is, what homework have you got? Or when they come in from school, what grade did you get? Or um, when they say, come in and say, oh, I got 70% saying, what did everybody else get? Then we're giving them this message. And it sometimes can be almost as fundamental as I care more about how you do than who you are. And I have seen that pattern, certainly with many families. And as the parents' anxiety about academic performance increases, they ask more. That's what they focus on. And um, at, by the same token, the child's motivation towards that goal reduces because they kind of rebel against it, really, and say, well, uh, you know, uh, at an unconscious level, think, do you not really care about how I am? So counterintuitively, I think it can be helpful if there is a problem, you're noticing something, to find out how they are first, to be curious. What's going on for you? How are you finding maths? You know, what is it you find easy? What is it you find harder? Allow them a space to kind of express that. Yeah, and I think also the, the idea about sitting with the uncertainty of, of, the, of the young person not really knowing what they want or who they are. And that is really, you know, by the seat of your pants parenting, because, you know, as a parent, you know, we would want to sort of have a sense for that young person about where they're headed and they may well not know. And it might be that they're not academic and that's okay, but help them, support them, explore other areas so that they can find another way um, through life. And that, of course, it's Many of our, because these are gateway exams, many career choices might be dependent on exams. But, you know, what's enough? What would be enough to get through? And that would be wonderful if it's not that, if it's not through an academic path. What other path is it? And that's equally valid. Um, and it's hard to see that, I think, as a teen, if you're not an academic teen, you know, to consider something that has equal validity in society's eyes, quite aside from, you know, academic success. But you as a parent can model that very clearly by connoting it and caring about it just as much as academic success. I think certainly with, um, when I look back to the time that um, Jake was going through his, and as I said, there was, there was a lot of friction um, because I didn't handle it very well because um, he didn't want to give up his position as he saw it, I guess. And actually our watershed moment came from broadly what you're talking about. Actually, look, this this can't go on. How how can I be more helpful? Where do you want to get to? And and what can I do to support that? Because if I can't if I can't stop you from making the mistakes that I'm gonna make, at least let's do it together and I'll and we'll see if I can't point them out along the way and you can decide how to avoid them that sounds like a grade parenting i have to say that's you know what can i do 
and and look, you know, and look how he responded. Always trying to have that layer of kind of metacognition, you know, that being able to reflect on their own thinking. What's, you know, how was it? What do you find happens in maths? Do you start to concentrate and then you lose focus? You know, what happens when you come in from home? What's the best time for you to work? What worked better for you yesterday? What would you like me to do? Um, you know, is it is it helpful for me to sit here or would you like? So literally helping them to become more curious about their own experience. They are the experts in them. And they, if you can help them to learn about themselves, I think that's amazing. And I think as somebody who really failed at school academically, and then when I found something I was passionate about, no, I wasn't I wasn't awfully rebellious, but you know, I had a lot of fun for a few years and I came back to it. <laughs> but when I found something that I was interested in, I and I was motivated towards it, I found out about how my brain worked. I realized I have to work, write everything down. I realize I have to be in a completely silent place in order to focus. All of these things I learned about myself. So if you can help the, the young person to be curious about themselves, it's it can be unbelievably powerful in unlocking things for them. Hmm. I should say that my um that the A grade parenting came from a point of utter despair and exasperation. So uh, mm. I'm definitely not up for any awards. And um, the world's best dad <laughs> mug I drink from every now and again, I bought for myself. This is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that whole idea of how can I support you, I think was um, Jonathan Peach in an earlier episode talked about coaching. And, um, and actually, for these moments of time when the children are studying or revising, actually, it's not about being a parent at that point and trying to do those things to protect... But actually, coach and mentor, um, which I guess is so much more important now that schools are out, and and finding out from them, who do, you, what do you need me to be? How do you need me to act to support you um, towards what is ideally a shared or or common goal? And that's a consultative uh, model which a teen absolutely will respond to. This is not I'm telling what to do. This is you know you're in charge here. I'm your your study buddy. What am I going to do? And they will rise to that occasion. I think it's, it's absolutely, from a neuroscience point of view, a really successful strategy. And it does require an enormous amount of patience, I have to say. You know, I'm not underestimating how hard it is when you know a child's exam is coming up, when you know how important it is for them to hold on to your own anxiety, because you know the best way they can do it. But you have to allow them to do it their way. You just have to stand back and let them work it out a little bit for themselves. It's tough. Consultative model sounds so much better than the way I coined it at the time, which was parental <laughs> manipulation. And I think, I think that might be why I was never up for that A-grade award. <laughs> Bettina and Jane, thank you both so much for your time. It's a little strange to think that the teenage brain is so perfectly adapted to what it needs to be, when it can so often clash with the parent brain. It makes sense that during this period of time, our young people need to find their own way, to tackle their own unknowns and to take risks. And so the problem seems to be not so much with them as with us, and the expectations that we might have about our role as a parent. We want to protect them, and for us, steering them away from the elephant traps that we can see a mile off is, of course, natural. For thousands of years of evolutionary development wasn't oriented towards studying for exams, and I think a certain amount of clashing is going to be inevitable as parameters are drawn up, 
tested and then redrawn. Key to the successful outcomes of dealing with the issues is dealing with them when we're less emotionally charged, and that's the parent and the child. The other essential ingredient is understanding what's going on in your teenager. It's not enough to have been one yourself to get it. On finding out that we were expecting our first child, we rushed out in the days before Amazon and bought a book about pregnancy and, and what to expect in the early years. Odd then that on becoming the parent of an adolescent, it was something we casually fell into. Bettina, Jane and Tara's book is, I would say, essential reading to prepare yourself for this new phase. It's the instruction manual that should come with all teenagers. As ever, my thanks to you for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and indeed this series. If you have, a review and a five-star rating would be gratefully received. Next week, we have an extra special episode. We're going to meet six students, all studying for their GCSEs in 2021. And we're going to be following their journey over the next year as they head towards their exams. And we'll be exploring some of the issues that all teens face during that period with experts. So, if you have a teen coming up to exams, don't forget to subscribe. You won't want to miss the next series of the Study Sessions podcast.